Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. This is Tommy Vitor. This week's episode is actually two interviews. The first is a conversation with Janet Napolitano, who is the Secretary of Homeland Security. We talk about the challenge of combating radical domestic terrorists like the people we saw in Charleston this week. It's something she's been working on for a long time. And her perspective is invaluable. And then the second conversation is with David Cohen, who is the deputy director of the CIA. And he talks about how the building works, what it's like to be briefed on the deepest secrets in the entire world. And he also talked about his role at Treasury, where he used financial intelligence to combat terrorists. He's a fascinating guy who had incredible jobs and I think brings you behind the scenes in a way that you won't find anywhere else. So thanks again for tuning in. Enjoy the interviews. On the line is President Janet Napolitano. She has served in a number of critical roles in government, but one of the most recent and one of the most relevant was the head of the Department of Homeland Security during the Obama administration. President Napolitano, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. I was wondering just what your basic reaction was to the events of the weekend and their response from the Trump administration so far. Well, I was you know, horrified at the violence in Charlottesville. And, you know, my sympathies go out to the injured and to the family and friends of uh, the women and the police officers who were who were killed. And sorely disappointed in uh, the president's comments, particularly on his reference to, was it many sides or both sides, mm-hmm. yeah. et cetera, um, and his reluctance to cast blame where blame was due, and uh, and his failure to, to really come forward with a message of unity for the country. Yeah, yeah. So digging into the policy here, the problem of right-wing extremism is not new. Uh, it's not new to Trump. In fact, in 2009, the Department of Homeland Security released a report titled Right-Wing Extremism, Current Economic and Political Climate Fueling Resurgence in Radicalization and Recruitment. Uh, It was a report that I believe was prepared by Bush administration officials and then released by the Obama administration in April of 2009. I was hoping you could talk a bit about that report because when I think back on it and how quickly it was politicized and actually walked back wrongly, in my view, by us, the Obama administration, not DHS, the, the White House, it bothers me because I feel like we've been reluctant to talk about a real growing threat uh, in communities and to police forces across the country that we saw spill out this weekend. That's right. And the report correctly you know, identified some of the factors that fuel the rise in uh, right-wing extremism and its growth around the country. It was walked back in part because of references to veterans, and those references were not well done or or well-researched. But the overall gist of the report was accurate. And, you know, this is something we have to grapple with as a country. There are real pockets of right-wing extremism, and they have become, if anything, more vocal and more active in the current political climate than they were even during the Obama administration. What is the policy solution to deal with the threat from these groups? Because what's so disconcerting is it's, I mean, what I assume should be able to unify people, I guess, is the fact that very often these individuals are a threat to law enforcement personnel who pull them over, who visit their homes, and these acts end in violence. How do we get everyone to reflect on that fact and focus on these individuals and the threat they pose? Well, I I think, number one, it is a real law enforcement problem to the extent that these Groups are fomenting violence and supporting violence and committing acts of violence. 
you know, that is a real threat to American communities. So the top concern is a law enforcement concern. But there's a more fundamental concern, which are what are the conditions that are, you know, kind of fomenting the rise of these groups? And are there things that we can identify that would provide for successful interventions, as it were, Mm -hmm. either on an individual basis or on a group basis. And that's a more difficult question because there are a variety of factors that go into this uh, that are, uh, many of them are socioeconomic. Many of those who associate with these groups are kind of feeling left out of, you know, the sense of, um, you know, opportunity and um, the ability to thrive economically that so many other people have. That's not a universal causal factor, but it's certainly there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, dealing with it as a law enforcement issue is, from a government perspective, is the top concern. But again, there's, you know, I think some more fundamental thought needs to be given to why are we having these groups and what is it that they're about and what can we do to prevent their increase? Mm -hmm. It's funny, when I hear you talk about these groups, if you didn't say the name, if you didn't say it's a right-wing extremism, or if you didn't say ISIS, it often feels like we could be talking about the same thing. And that you know, sometimes our politics demands that we focus on the ideology of one or another and put aside some of the basic sort of economic or political concerns you're talking about. I mean, do you see these as sort of a piece of the same puzzle? I'm not trying to compare them directly, but I mean, is there a more like fundamental basic set of policy choices we need to make to tackle all of these issues? Well, you know, the work on countering violent extremism is very difficult work because we don't have a great understanding of uh, why someone becomes a terrorist, be they an Islamist terrorist, a radical Islamic terrorist, be they a right-wing terrorist. And so taking any kind of preventive action is difficult. And one of the most effective things we can do is help identify people, and and they are primarily, but not exclusively, but primarily uh, young men um, who are becoming isolated, all of a sudden, uh, you know, they're they're not going to school or they drop out of school. There's often a social media aspect to this, that social media is a real tool of uh, radicalization. And so uh, trying to you know, identify, and then, again, trying to do a a successful, you know, intervention and get people uh, kind of back on a a more positive track, if Mm -hmm. if I can use that word. So, you know, these are difficult things to do. And, you know, overall, I think as a country, we're not dealing well with them. Mm -hmm. When when I think about these problems, I mean, there's like, there's actions taken by men and women. There, you know, there's like acts of violence, criminal acts, et cetera, that I think you can sort of intervene in and stop. But then there's this ideology that just seems to spread like wildfire over the Internet, whether it's right wing extremism, whether it's ISIS propaganda. Have you seen any elements of like the national security apparatus writ large dealing with that challenge well? Or, or are we just still in uncharted territory here? Well, I I think that at Homeland Security, we were beginning to take some actions on countering violent extremism, and they were community-based actions. We worked extensively with the faith-based community, which has a role to play here, you know, trying to, you know, reach out, trying to develop techniques and tactics that would be successful. And one of the things we did was we provided grants to local groups to work in this area. The Trump administration has uh, signaled that it wants to recast those grants as only being focused on Islamist terrorism as opposed to any kind of terrorism, domestic or international. You know, I, I think there is an unfortunate failure by the president to speak out strongly against these far-right groups. And you, we know this president, when he wants to speak out strongly, he's not shy about doing so. Right. And so, you know, it really does leave a vacuum at the top. 
And when you have a vacuum at, at the top, it leaves the country questioning, well, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And what ideology is the president really supporting? Right. President Napolitano, thank you so much for doing the show this morning. Thank you for all the work you've done to combat these violent extremist groups since 2009 and for helping us try to understand something a little better that feels really, really hard to fathom at this moment. Indeed. Indeed. Thank you, Tommy. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, We've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Joining me today on Pod Save the World is David Cohen. David was sworn in as Deputy Director of the Central Intelligence Agency in February of 2015 and served in that position until the end of the Obama administration. Before becoming Deputy Director, he was the Undersecretary of the Treasury for Terrorism and Financial Intelligence and the Treasury Department's Assistant Secretary for Terrorist Financing. He's also a wicked smart lawyer, as we say in Boston. Thank you so much for being on the pod. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks, Tommy. Nothing exciting in the news this week. So yeah. I figured I'd just start with something boring like North Korea. You're an Intel guy. According to the Washington Post, the intelligence community, I think they said it was the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, now believes that North Korea has miniaturized a nuclear warhead. And Pod Save the World listeners will know that that's an important step in terms of putting a, a nuclear warhead on an ICBM that could actually reach the United States. So... In English, this just means that they're a lot further down the path towards creating a missile that could strike us than many people thought. I saw one person quoted saying that the situation went from being a slow-moving Cuban missile crisis to something more closely resembling the Manhattan Project. Does this look to you like a leap in capability? Because a lot of people seem surprised by this latest assessment. Well, you know, now having been out of the agency for uh, for seven months, uh, I'm not privy to the latest intel. But uh, but it, you know, assuming that DA assessment is what it is that North Korea is miniaturized, it's an important step down the path to having an operable ICBM uh, that can you know strike the U.S. There are still other steps that need to be accomplished. I mean, I think they have not demonstrated that they, for instance, have a reentry vehicle that can survive 
the ICBM going up into the atmosphere and coming back in, you know, I don't think there's a, a demonstration of great targeting capability. But, you know, we shouldn't kid ourselves. Whether it's, you know, today, a month from now, a year from now, the North Koreans are moving ahead with this ballistic missile program. And at some point, will you know have a capability uh, that they think is reliable to strike the U.S. and that's a you know that's that's a serious issue. That's a serious problem. The big deal. So this is a bit of a speculative question. So uh, dismiss it accordingly if you if you think so. But no one is surprised by their technology advancements because it's literally like fifties era technology. Getting a first stage, second stage, third stage rocket that could reach right. increasingly further distances, but. I thought that the miniaturization process was far more complex. Decades ago, a Pakistani scientist named A.Q. Khan, who is the, the father of Pakistan's nuclear program, shared nuclear secrets and technology with North Korea. Does this feel like an instance where they might have gotten some infusion of knowledge? I mean, again, I'm speculating here. It just feels like a lot of people were caught off guard by the miniaturization progress. Yeah, look, I think the key to recognize on North Korea's nuclear program and its ballistic missile program is that for a you know impoverished state that doesn't have a hell of a lot going for it, they pour all of their resources into these programs. They mm-hmm. save a little bit for their cyber activity. We should we want to talk about that. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that. but by and large, they take all their you know smart kids and train them up to be nuclear scientists and you know and, and rocket scientists, and you know that's a national endeavor to develop this capability. So you're right. I mean, miniaturizing a nuclear warhead to be able to stick it on top of an ICBM is uh, that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, but it is their equivalent of the moonshot. I mean, this is what they are all working together to try to achieve. How do you think your former agency colleagues assess the impact of Trump's recent rhetoric about North Korea? Could he be jujitsuing them? Could it intimidate them? Could this be something that makes uh, Kim Jong-un back down? Or do you think he could be making it worse? Could he be making it harder to get to a negotiations phase? Like, What's your assessment? What do you think the agency thinks about this kind of rhetoric? Yeah, I mean, I've been toying with the notion that maybe there is some really well-developed, carefully honed strategy <laughs> underlying what's been going on. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, it's pretty hard to actually maintain that uh, that way of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. I, look, I think there's two important things to recognize about how the North Koreans uh, and Kim Jong Un in particular are interpreting this you know ever increasing heightening rhetoric coming out of uh, out of the president in particular one is that kim jong un is loving this as a matter of domestic politics in north korea it works perfectly for him what he yeah. needs what his father what his grandfather needs what that dynasty needs is an america that is hostile an america that is you know always out there at any moment ready to strike and the more that the president of the united states uses this torqued up rhetoric, the more that Kim Jong-un is able to solidify his control in North Korea. And, Mm -hmm. you know, don't make any mistake about it. It is a totalitarian, awful place. I think, you know, it's arguably the worst place on earth. And, you know, so getting into this war of words uh, with the president, um, something that the North Koreans are really good at. They've got they got one of the best thesauruses I've ever seen when they, uh, you know, when, <laughs> yeah. as they you know, routinely make these sorts of over-the-top threats. Uh, this is great for Kim domestically. The other piece of this is that, and it's you know, a little more worrisome, frankly, is that the North Koreans and Kim Jong-un as well really authentically believes that at any given moment, the United States, you know, along with our allies in the region, are going to attack, that the mm-hmm. the war isn't over. There was an armistice in 1953, but the war is still going on, and right. that what the United States is planning to do is to engage in regime change. And the danger of this, you know, this rhetoric that the president is engaging in right now is that it can create a situation where the North Koreans and Kim Jong-un misperceives something that we're doing, whether it's uh, you know, a, one of these uh, you know, bomber runs as a demonstration or the military exercises, the naval exercises that, uh, mm-hmm. that always occur this time of year, 
that the North Koreans misperceive that as, in fact, the leading edge of an attack. And mm -hmm. North Korean doctrine is to strike first. If they think yeah. they're about to be attacked, they're going to go first. So the risk of a miscalculation here and a shooting war breaking out as a result of that is increased the more that we play into their fear of, of an American attack. Yeah, sobering stuff. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Okay, stepping back from the horror show that is North Korea... You were the deputy director of the CIA. I suspect that early on in your tenure, you had a series of the most fascinating briefings one could possibly imagine. That would include meetings with the science and technology division uh, to talk about all the cool gadgets we use to, right. to collect intelligence. That would include briefings about not just the most sensitive information we've gathered or assessments, but the sources and methods for how we gather that information. Names of intelligence assets that we pay or that we coerce into giving us information. I would never ask you to divulge any of those secrets since you'd be frogmarched to jail. <laughs> <laughs> but can you try to take us in the room? Like, What is that experience like getting... I mean, because I think what people need to understand is like you can have a top secret clearance and that doesn't mean you have what's called a need to know certain information especially yeah. when it comes to the how we collect suddenly you were thrust into the most sensitive levels of intelligence information that exists on the planet like the level of the president is at what was that like it was unbelievably fascinating and and i would also say without trying to sound too corny it was sort of inspiring Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there were a number of days uh, where, it, you know, I'm heading home at the end of the day and I thought to myself, man, I wish that, you know, folks out in Peoria, wherever, could have seen what I saw today because mm -hmm. the people who are doing this work and the way that we're doing this work is truly outstanding. It really is. So, you know, so I got to the agency in, uh, you know, in early February of 2015 uh, after having spent six years at the Treasury Department and 20 years before that as a lawyer. But in my six years at Treasury, I had a fair amount of interaction with the agency, particularly on Iran-related issues. So mm -hmm. I came to the agency and I thought I basically had a handle on what we were doing on the <laughs> Iran portfolio. And one of the early briefings that I, that I took was about Iran, sort of how we collect, what we know, uh, sort of everything, you know, soup to nuts on Iran. And it was eye-opening. Um, mm -hmm. The, you know, our ability to to gather intelligence and to 
and to incorporate it into other forms of intelligence that others in the intel community are collecting. So, you know, the CIA does human intelligence. You've got NSA doing SIGINT. You've got NGA doing you know, overhead satellite work. And then also intel that we collect uh, from our friends around the world. And the, the picture of what was going on inside Iran as of you know, February 2015 that I thought I knew, you know, it turned out it was like one mm-hmm. of those you know, Monet's where you're just looking at one little dot and then you step back and you see this whole, you know, beautiful or not so beautiful picture depending on your <laughs> in your perspective. So, yeah, so it's, uh, and, you know, that's just one, one example of what I, you know, was fortunate enough to encounter, you know, again and again in my tenure at, at, uh, at the CIA. Continuing on a little bit about like how the CIA works, right? It's this clandestine organization. There's so much mystique. But I was hoping like you guys have all these support staff and specialized positions. But the yeah. gist of how it's been explained to me or my experience of how it works is you have you have analysts who study and evaluate information. And then you have the clandestine service folks who go out and do the actual spying. Is that right? Can you talk about those roles? And is, is it true that it's like a reprisal of uh, jocks versus nerds and they don't sit together <laughs> in the cafeteria? You know, there was a time where they didn't sit together in the cafeteria, where there <laughs> really? was a, a tarp that was put up halfway through the cafeteria and the the folks from the directorate of operations, so the, the officers out there meeting with uh, uh, our agents, couldn't be seen by others in the agency. That's a uh, that tarp was taken down long ago. That tarp has seen some shit. That's yeah, that's exactly, an story. yeah, exactly. <laughs> but uh, so you know, in addition to the director of operations, so the the folks who are out on the street, you know, meeting with sources, you know, recruiting people to uh, you know to spy for the United States, uh, and the analysts who take the the intelligence that is collected. Uh, from these sources and from all sources of intelligence. So they also you know, have access to everything that's collected by the U.S. intelligence community. There are three other components of the agency that are really important. It's worth just noting that. There's the, the director of support. So, you know, it's a worldwide organization. We are operating, you know, in many, many countries around the world. And to be able to operate and to operate in a clandestine fashion in, you know, numerous, numerous places around the world is you know is pretty tricky, um, and mm-hmm. so the support operation at the agency, which you know doesn't get any attention, which is frankly the way they want it, is really outstanding. And then, in addition to so, you've got the director of operations, director of analysis, director of support. We've got two sort of technical directorates: the longstanding director of science and technology that you mentioned. These are the guys who and gals who develop the gizmos, um, the sort of devices that we use in various ways to collect intelligence and to, and to communicate with sources around the world. And then something that, that was actually set up just about a year and a half ago now when uh, Director Brennan put into place a, a strategic modernization at the agency is a new directorate called the Directorate of Digital Innovation. And what this directorate is, uh, is charged with is harnessing technology, harnessing the digital age. So not the physical devices that DS&T creates and, uh, and deploys, but you know, harnessing cyberspace, harnessing big data, harnessing you know, software programs to both enhance our collection as well as to improve our ability to conduct analysis really across the whole Intel cycle. You know, we need to do a better job of taking advantage of the the digital era and the director of digital innovation uh, was created to make sure that we were doing the very best we could uh, on that. God, I would kill for one of those S&T briefings. That must be the most fascinating. I've heard that's the thing that wows every president who comes into office. Yeah, well, they, uh, you know, it ranges from, you know, devices that can you know, collect intelligence in various ways, whether, you know, you're you know, I should probably stop there. Actually, okay, that's fine. That's <laughs> but it can collect in various ways. To the you know the folks who do the disguises are in DS and T. So I mean, there was one occasion where I went out and visited one of our facilities, and the person was giving me the the tour, was showing me around uh, the you know all the, it was a DS and T facility, and was telling me about this thing and that thing. 
And at the end of this sort of, I don't know, it was 45 minutes or so tour, the person took off her wig. What? Took off her scarf, did some stuff with her ears and nose that, uh, you know, that, to take off some things that she had on. And I realized then that this was somebody that I knew. Is someone who I had dealt with every day, basically. And I had no idea for the that's preceding incredible. 45 minutes that that's who it was. And so that's, you know, that's part of what the DS&T does as well. I hope you don't lose those people to the next Hobbit movie um, <laughs> or Game of Thrones. So, okay, last sort of question on this vein is a lot of people, young people listen to this show. I think a lot of them are, are tempted by government service. I think a lot of people find national security fascinating. What is your pitch to young people who want to work in government and serve their country for why they should join the CIA over the State Department or the military or whatever other component? Well, look, I mean, I think if you want to serve, you should serve. I'm a huge proponent of of public service. And if you want to do it in the military, if you want to do it state, if you want to do it, you know, in the, you know, in the Peace Corps and AmeriCorps, go do it. We need young people to get involved. But if you've got a particular interest in national security and, you know, you're the kind of person who you know, likes to, to operate a little bit out on the wire, you know, a little on your own, using your, your guile, using your, your moxie, there's, you know, tremendous opportunity in the agency to be, you know, to be one of our officers who's out overseas, you know, working with sources, recruiting new sources, and collecting intelligence. And one of, one of the great things that I got to do as the deputy director is travel around a bunch, and I would go out to uh, to various stations around the world. And something that I I always did is I would sit down with the young officers and have them describe to me, you know, a, a recent a recent operation that they conducted, um, whether it was meeting with a source or or meeting with someone who they're trying to develop uh, or what have you. And the the ingenuity. And the bravery and just the coolness of what yeah. they were doing was stunning. And these were, you know, these were relatively young folks, you know, 30 years old, you know, 31 years old, whatever, out there basically on their own working on behalf of the United States. Um, and, you know, I think they got a charge out of it. I certainly got a charge out of it. So that's one way. But there is a, one of the great things about the the CIA is that there is a job in the CIA – for pretty much every skill set that you have. So if, you know, you want to be uh, an officer out on the street, that's great. You know, that's sort of the, you know, what is sort of best known about the agency. But the analysts who get to, you know, work on writing the papers that go to the most senior decision makers in the government, including the president, that help make sense of what's going on in the world and who develop really exquisite expertise on you know particularly interesting and difficult national security problems, that's a I think a enormously rewarding profession as well. Um, you know, yeah. so the you know the folks, for instance, you know who wrote the report on the Russian intervention in our election last fall, these were all career analysts in the agency working with some of their counterparts in in the NSA and the FBI who were. Who had you know studied the Russians, studied cyber, studied the use of information ops against the United States for years, and they got to you know get together and write what is I think a really outstanding piece of work, even if uh, our current president doesn't seem to to want to accept <laughs> its conclusions. Yeah. But you know, but even you know you can, I I would have lunch uh, every once in a while with with new officers and from all across the agency. And, that, and there was, you know, one guy who was an electrician and mm-hmm. told me that, you know, he always wanted to be an electrician but was always interested in national security. And, you know, one day it dawned on him, man, I could work at the CIA and be an electrician. And there he was, you know, and uh, we need electricians. We need carpenters. We need, you know, everything that you can imagine to run a worldwide organization. That's cool. So, so sign up. Go to CIA.gov and uh, put in an application. 
<laughs> I, I was going to I was trolling around the website yesterday in preparation for this interview, and it's so funny like to see the application forms and the pitches on the website for the agency. It just feels so yeah. discordant to me. But another thing the agency does that's fascinating to me is they have this counterintelligence function. They try to make sure we're not being spied on by people inside or outside our government or being collected on generally. Joking aside, are, are you worried it's gotten easier to collect on this administration, this country? I mean, I, apparently Trump is still using his old Android phone. I remember when Trump let a Russian government photographer into the Oval Office, Biden's former national security advisor, Colin Call, tweeted, deadly serious question, was it a good idea to let a Russian government photog and all of his equipment into the Oval Office? You replied, no, it was not. Does this stuff yeah. worry you? <laughs> it does. And, you know, whether the president is using an unsecured phone or not, and, you know, I, I hope he's not because, uh, you know, that's obviously an enormous security risk. The fact that he's, you know, constantly posting on Twitter, you know, his, you know, most immediate thought that pops into his head is an Intel goldmine for mm-hmm. for our adversaries' uh, Intel services. You know, the, one of the things that every intelligence service tries to do is to understand the intentions in, of our adversaries' leaders. And, you know, it's not so hard to figure out what the intentions are of the president these days. But look, I, I th- there's a, the counterintelligence operation of the agency is always a hugely important aspect of what we do. It's one of the it's one of the five core missions of the agency, along with you know collection, analysis, you know, covert action, and liaison uh, relationships. You know the counterintelligence mission is uh, is something that we spend an enormous amount of time on. Without getting too much into the investigation into collusion in the fall. You know, during the election, I think there's a lot of counterintelligence work that is underway currently yeah. and, and for good um, reason. How does the CIA deal with political transitions? Because they, this one feels particularly disruptive, but I imagine it was disruptive for individuals to go from Bush administration policies to Obama administration policies. How does the agency manage that process? Like, wh- what is it like internally for them? We were preparing for this transition uh, beginning in about February of last year. Um, so obviously long before we knew who the new president was going to be, we you know, dusted off the old playbook that had been used in the, in the Bush to Obama transition and, and went back before that as well to, um, to make sure that we, we were pulling together the material that the new team would need. And you know, by the time the election rolled around, we had a series of very detailed briefing books that ranged from, you know, sort of a, a, a sweep of what was happening in the world and how we thought about it to, you know, more specific uh, briefings on our covert action programs, uh, all ready to go uh, for the new team. The approach, and I think this has historically been the approach at the agency, is that we're, we are there as a as a service entity. We're ready to provide the president-elect and, and his or her new team with the factual foundation, our best assessment of what's going on in the world and why uh, for them to make use of. Um, it's, it is a quite self-consciously non-political process. Uh, we don't you know, pick winners and losers. We don't fundamentally care who the president is or what his or her policies might be, our role is to provide that, that foundation so that the policymakers uh, can make their judgments. Uh, and that's – so as we went into this transition, uh, that was our approach. You know, mm-hmm. As it turned out, the transition was I think not as fluid as we had hoped. I think that it took a <laughs> while for the, the Trump team to – uh, to get in place, uh, but we, you know, once they were identified, you know, we met with then uh, Director Designate Pompeo met with a transition team and and you know tried to brief them up as best we could. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that I think gets lost is that the intelligence community is is not at the table at these sit room meetings or wherever else to sort of make policy decisions. They're providing information that right. helps the entire organization make the best, most well-informed 
choices they possibly can. Yeah, right? that, that is a hugely important point and one that I think does get lost a lot, that the CIA and the intel community more generally is not a policymaking entity or not a policymaking you know, group of entities. Our obligation and our mission is to provide the best understanding, the best assessment, the best judgments about what is happening in the world and to some extent our best prediction about what will happen if various policies are pursued. But it's up to the president and his or her national security team, foreign policy team to make those policy judgments. Um, And that distinction between the objective analysis based on all sources of information that the agency produces and the political judgments of policymakers is one that, you know, is really, really important to maintain. An interesting example of exactly that is you wrote a uh, an op-ed recently, I believe it was in the Washington Post, talking about how Trump was politicizing intelligence around Iran. I was hoping you could you could talk a little bit about what you meant there and sort of the way the intelligence community assesses whether Iran is conforming to the Iran nuclear agreement yeah. and then what then happens at a political level once that assessment is made. Yeah. Um, so I wrote a piece that pointed out the risk that uh, that Trump was politicizing intelligence and that the jumping off point is the Iran deal, you know, which put a, a whole series of restrictions on Iran's nuclear program in terms of you know, how much enriched uranium they could hold, what kind of centrifuges they could have, how many they could spin, you know, whether they could have a plutonium reactor, a whole set of sort of objective constraints on Iran's nuclear program. Congress passed a law that requires the president every 90 days to uh, make a determination whether Iran is complying with those uh, with those requirements, and the last ninety day uh, uh, deadline came up a couple weeks ago, and the the reports were that you know there was a meeting in the Situation Room with the, the whole national security team, and that it was the uniform recommendation of Secretary Mattis, you know, Secretary of Defense Mattis, Secretary of State Tillerson, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Dunford, and the National Security Advisor, General McMaster, that the president certify that Iran was complying with its obligations under the nuclear deal, um, which undoubtedly was based on intelligence analysis that was provided by, by the agency and others in the intelligence community. And the reports are that uh, that the president had what was described as a meltdown in the situation room and was very unhappy um, because in his view, you know, he believes that Iran is noncompliant. And he gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal, you know, about a, a week or two ago where he said, I don't think they're complying. I think they're noncompliant. And, you know, it's easy to say they comply. I think they're not compliant. And he – so he reluctantly agreed to – Take the advice of his national security team, the you know the so-called adults who are uh, trying to you know contain the president in a sense, and certified uh, Iran's compliance. But he came out of that meeting and he charged a group in the White House, uh, including you know that well-known intel expert Steve Bannon, to uh, He's all over. to conduct some uh, some detailed studies. Uh, I think it was what the phrase he used, the objective of which is to sort of justify the president's uh, preconceived notion that Iran is not complying with the nuclear deal. And that is basically the definition of the politicization of intelligence. You've got a, a president who has a preferred policy outcome, doesn't like the intelligence that he's getting, and so he has now directed uh, apparently, a, a study to change the analysis so that it it meets his desires. That is a big problem. Um, yeah, you know, the, I mean, obviously, the president and you know, the senior policymakers have the prerogative to ask hard questions and to challenge the judgments of the intelligence community. But there's a big difference between asking a pointed question and demanding a specific answer. Yeah, demanding an outcome. Right? Um, yeah, exactly, and that that is just a corruption of the intelligence process, and it's 
you know, and it's really dangerous. It's dangerous for the specific issue that you're working on. So, you know, here on the Iran deal, it will, you know, if you bake into the analysis the outcome that you're looking for, you know, you don't have the the value of the intelligence analysis to uh, to help you in your decision making process. But it also, you know, undermines the credibility and reliability of the U.S. intelligence community more generally. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, you know, there's a whole host of problems that flow from that. I thought it was a bad thing. I did too. I mean, <laughs> and especially like it's even more glaring in the context of North Korea where you have the North Korean program, which is just inexorably heading in a bad and more dangerous place. And you have an Iran nuclear program that is being managed right. for better, for worse by the international community. And the message it sends for us to throw out the Iran deal based on like overtly cooked intelligence judgments sends a message to North Korea that they could never cut a deal with us. And I think that's a very dangerous thing. I totally agree with that. And it's not just North Korea. And but I think North Korea is a is a perfect example of why you want your intelligence to be trusted around the world. Because, you know, whether it's trying to persuade North Korea that they can do a deal with the United States and that we will live up to our end of the bargain, which is part of it, but also being able to go to allies around the world or folks who are not quite allies, you know, the, the Chinese right. and certainly you know, right. the Russians in the context of the Iran deal and present to them our intelligence assessment and have them trust it and believe it is enormously important in a range of different situations. So, you yeah. know, if you think about, you know, counterterrorism, for instance, you know, one of the things that we have done, you know, historically and routinely is gone to partners around the world and say, here's what we know about Al Qaeda. Here's what the the attacks they're planning. Here's how they're raising money in your country. And here's how we know it because our intel has detected this and and you know, we've made these uh, these assessments. That process depends on whoever you're talking to having trust and confidence in the reliability of the intelligence. And yep. the more that intel gets politicized, the less able we, we are to, uh, you know, to bring people along sort of regardless of what the national security issue might be. Yep, and we're still trying to manage the fallout for the Iraq war where uh, the intelligence was, was incorrect. Switching gears a little bit, and I, I'm mad at myself for not leaving more time for this. At the Treasury Department, you focused on terrorism, terrorist financing, financial intelligence. One eye-opening thing for me during my time in the, at the NSC was how big of a role Treasury plays in combating terrorists. Can you talk about what you did and, and sort of talk about how sanctions are used and financial intelligence is used to fight groups like ISIS or al-Qaeda? Yeah, sure. So, it, you know, the old adage of, uh, you know, follow the money is sort of at the heart of what we did at Treasury. Um, so, you know, just like you know, good guys, you know, bad guys like Al-Qaeda and, and ISIL and, you know, other terrorist groups need money to operate. Um, they need to raise money. They need to move money. They need to spend money for the whole range of activities that they're involved in. And so one of the things we did at Treasury was use financial intelligence, follow the money, figure out the money trails, figure out the networks and map these networks of the donors who are supporting al-Qaeda in particular, the financial institutions that might be involved in transferring the funds, and impose sanctions on those persons and, and institutions that are involved in the process. And the, the practical legal effect of a sanction that, in that circumstance is that whoever we designate with sanctions and put, put sanctions on is cut off from the U.S. financial system. Their assets here, if they have any, are frozen, and you know their name goes on a list. For a lot of uh, of folks, particularly you know operating in the Middle East, that's not a particularly significant event. They don't may not have a bank account, you know, here mm -hmm. in the U.S. They may not have any assets here. Right. But what we would do is we would do these designations, and we would then engage in sort of. Uh, you know, counterterrorism diplomacy in a sense. We would go out and meet with counterparts in foreign governments and with foreign financial institutions uh, that are not, may not be subject to U.S. law, but nonetheless care about their reputation. And we would go mm -hmm. to them and say, look, we've imposed sanctions on, you know, on 
you know, Joe Smith here because he's a financier for Al-Qaeda. You don't want to have Joe Smith running money through your bank. You don't want to host an account for Joe Smith. It's bad for your reputation. And financial institutions around the world, you know, care much more about their reputation than they care about, you know, one guy who might be, you know, having an account at their at their bank. And so we were able to persuade financial institutions to work with us and cut off the money flow that way. And we'd also do, yeah. you know, similar work with uh, as I said with uh, with foreign regulators and uh, and and others in governments around the world, so that they could amplify our efforts. Yeah, it is incredibly important work, and one of the most important tools that any NSC or president turns to to put the screws down on a lot of bad actors. Last question for you: Is there a deep state? Are you in it? <laughs> Do they sell T-shirts? Like, where can I find these guys? I don't know where you can get a T-shirt, but uh, you know, I'm. Uh, I'll go back to what I said at the outset of my my impression uh, when I got to the agency, although I don't want to diss my my friends back at Treasury either. Uh, the career staff that works at the CIA, like the career staff who works at Treasury and you know works all around our government, you know I'm mostly exposed to the national security foreign policy part of that, but I think it's you know, it's true more broadly. These are people who care about our country and have mostly foregone more highly lucrative occupations to get up every day and try and do what's best uh, for the United States. And, you know, I, I could not have been more proud to have the opportunity to have a you know, leadership position at Treasury and at the agency and to really, you know, stand on the shoulders of these folks. They're great Americans. And they often don't get to tell their husbands or wives or kids uh, what it is they do and why they weren't home for a birthday or a movie night or uh, whatever it might be. And uh, yeah. we, we are grateful to them and grateful to you for the late nights you put in at Treasury and at the CIA. Right. And thank you for doing the show. This was a fascinating well, conversation. I, I think say, any it, chance yeah. we can get to like demystify these jobs is so interesting to me. So thank you so much for for the time and for being willing to talk about this stuff. Well, I appreciate it. I, it was an incredible opportunity to serve in these positions, and uh, I loved every minute of it, and uh, I loved being on uh, Pod Save the World. Thanks, man. Well, if you, if you rustle up a Deep State t-shirt, let me know, and uh, we'll double back. Will do. <laughs> All right. Thanks, David. Okay. See you, Tommy. Have a good one. Bye. 